You're listening to Solar Insiders, a fortnightly update on the ins and the outs of the solar industry and what it means for solar owners and industry. With Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading solar industry veteran Nigel Morris. Solar Insiders is brought to you by SunWiz, Australia's leading service provider of the solar and storage industry, and Solar Analytics, helping you get more from your solar, more confidence, more savings, and more insights. Hello, and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. In fact, the last for calendar 2022. And before we send you um, off on the break. We just better have a wrap up of the latest events. Uh, my name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and One Step Off the Grid and the Driven EV site. And joining me as usual is Nigel Morris from Solar Analytics. Nigel, <laughs> I trust you well. <laughs> just trying to, just trying Giles, to remember I who am I am, well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, uh, I can hear the dulcet tones of a grandpa in your voice. Uh, you, you've got a little... Uh, a little grandson uh, somewhere in the background there, right? Well, he's sleeping in the room next door. So um, because we had to move this podcast from the evening to the morning, um, yes, I just don't want to wake them up or the parents. I think they've probably, you know, probably been up in the middle of the night um, feeding him and guiding him back to sleep. So, yes, we don't want a shouty solar inside this podcast waking up the poor, poor little fella. <laughs> <laughs> and I can hear the cicadas in the background at your place like we've got at my place now. Uh, we've got cicadas, the, we've got the next door neighbours we've got the next door neighbours chickens, we've got the magpies, and I think I just heard a butcher bird as well. So uh, it's all happening. It's all happening. Mm. Anyway. Um maybe it's the end of the year. I think everyone is just sort of um well, God, I mean, the way I'm feeling it is just sort of, you know, another couple of steps and we'll get there. It's been a uh, an exhausting year one way or another for, for just about everyone, I think. I think you're right. It's um, you know started off really, really bumpy um, and and quite tough in the, in the first half, and then the worm turned mid year, and uh, everyone got enthusiastic. The weather um, eventually came good, and um, so everyone's trying to make good and and running at a million miles an hour, uh, particularly in the last quarter. So I think yeah, like like you, everyone's ready for a break. But it's turned out to be not so bad in the end. I mean, I think just looking at the latest stats, well, I think we're at two and a half gigawatts for the um, for the year. I think the November stats came in at um, the third highest month on record, just short of 300 megawatts for the month. So for rooftop solar, it was pretty good. Um, and it's not going to be as high as 21 and 20, but it's going to be pretty close to three gigawatts. Yep, I reckon my, my guess would be 2.8. Um, uh, you know, December's a tricky one, but uh, I reckon everyone will do everything they possibly can to get to get everything in. So I, I reckon we're at 2.8, maybe 2.9 for the year. So um, you've got some fun facts for the end of the year. Why don't you hit us with the first one? Yeah, look, the... Um, you know, on the back of all the news about energy and the government's... Uh, intentions around energy price caps, um, uh, not, a, not a strict policy yet as such, but um, th- there was a great GenCost report that came out and I can remember going back, you know, 10 years and 20 years ago when the government used to rep- uh, release these reports and talk about, you know, what the levelised cost of energy was, the LCOE from solar. 
and the industry used to always get up in arms and go, oh, we're much cheaper than that. And, you know, you're, you're underselling us and all that kind of stuff. Well, the latest one's just come out. And solar PV, uh, clearly now, even according to the government um, and, and their various departments, has the absolute lowest LCOE in Australia at 50 to $70 a megawatt hour. Um, what was also interesting about that report was that even when you add storage uh, and, and move to large scale stuff, uh, solar was still uh, one of the lowest in the market. Um, so, you know, it shows where we've come to. Um, so I thought that was a great way to, to, to kind of wrap the year. The second one, of course, is that, um, and I'd sort of missed this, Giles, but in terms of the total installed capacity in, for generation in Australia, which is in total about 70 gigawatts now, uh, renewables this year became the majority. For the first time in our history, 53% of capacity is renewables. That's wind and solar. Um, and I, I kind of missed that. Well, we, we hadn't even touched on that throughout the year. But, you know, we have become, the renewable sector has now become the single biggest generation source of energy uh, in terms of capacity, at least, um, in Australia. And I think that's remarkable. It is pretty um, remarkable and when you think about it. How, how much of that is rooftop? Before we get onto that one, just um, um, how much of that is rooftop? Um, probably quite a lot, actually. Yeah. Um, um, I've got it here. Uh, here it is. Uh, rooftop. Um, um, rooftop in twenty twenty two is twenty bit over twenty percent. Hmm. Hmm. And just going back to your previous thing um, on the cost, one of the interesting things about the Gen Cost report was that it did show that solar had gone up around about 9% in the latest since they did their figures last year. But, um, and wind had actually jumped 30%, but all the fossil fuels had jumped as well, um, coal in particular and, and, and gas as well. So, um, and solar and storage, and solar and wind and storage, not just one of the cheapest options, they are the cheapest options for um, firmed capacity, whether that you're actually looking at that at 60% or 70% or 85 or 90% um, renewable share of the grid. So, you know, it just sort of basically sort of knocks it on the head um, in this sort of argument that, um, you know, coal, or as we're hearing increasingly now, nuclear could possibly be the, um, you know, the cheapest and most reliable form of um, electricity. But, um, you know, we're still hearing that in conservative circles. We've even had a couple of, we've had the South Australian Premier talking about nuclear all things, and Matt Keane, the New South Wales Energy Minister, said, oh, well, he'd be open to it in 2035 if it, um, if um, small mod modular reactors came around. But, uh, the reality is, is that you know we're going to be charging towards 100% renewables well before then, so it's a bit of an academic argument, really. But um, anyway, um, I just thought I'd put that it is. in. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's, I mean, it is, it is incredibly, it's incredible the whole thing, really, looking back at it, because you know rooftop solar is you know around 20%, black coal is 25, right? You know, we're we're, we're there's almost the same capacity. Now, of course, we know the capacity factor is different, but it is remarkable nonetheless. It is absolutely remarkable after all these years that, um, you know, combined we are the majority now. 
um, and um, and you know we're seeing fantastic um, uh, demand being met, um, which was which was point number three, where wind and solar. Well, hang on, hang on, I'm, I'm, no, hang on. I'm just going to actually sort of point out there that um, the capacity factor of all generation in Western Australia in the month of November, wind and solar beat coal and gas, and rooftop solar, rooftop solar beat coal on capacity factor in Western Australia. And so that's not, that's not just about how much coal they've got in the system, the fact that the coal plants that they've actually got were running at less than 20% capacity factor and rooftop solar beat it. So there you go. And the reason, and the, reason the coal-fired generators weren't doing much better than that was one, because rooftop solar is eating their lunch during the middle of the day, as they're doing in most states and continue to do so. Uh, a new record set in Victoria just um, just last Sunday, and um, and they they can't find enough coal there. They've um, the miners are going broke. They've kind of they, they can't dig enough coal. So now they're actually th thinking of shipping coal around from from New South Wales and Queensland to sort of shoving the um, in in the borders over in Western Australia. I mean, it's just a complete farce of a situation. But uh, anyway, I just thought that was a, a very amusing little tidbit that. Um, in some places, it's not just capacity, it's actually capacity factors where solar, rooftop solar, is beating coal and gas. Hilarious. Baseload. Hilarious. Uh, baseload. Remarkable. Baseload. Remarkable. <laughs> baseload. That's right. That's yes. right. Well, and then, maybe, and, and then maybe, maybe we should start off. talking about rooftop. Sorry, I am keep on interrupting you, Nigel, but baseload rooftop solar. I like it. I like it. I like it. And then, of course, you know, the other thing that, 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 that just adds to, you know, the literally dozens and dozens and dozens of records that have been broken this year is that, you know, South Australia went for an entire week uh, uh, with its energy demands met by wind and solar. 104, 105% of demand for a week, Giles. Well, it actually turns out it was longer than that. It got to, it stayed above 100% on a rolling average for about 10 days. It only, um, it only um, ended yesterday, um, so it's quite remarkable. Um, for the, for, so it's 10 days in a row from about the 9th of December to the 19th of December, average over 100%, as you'd said, in one seven-day period, 104%. And that is even with a lot of the wind and um, large-scale solar curtailed during the middle of the day because they don't have big enough um, storage and they don't have big enough transmission lines to allow more to generate and sort of the prices go down below zero and um, some of the big wind farms and some of the big solar farms switch themselves off so um, a lot of that sort of you know midday push was just driven entirely by rooftop solar um, wow and, do we know um, how much curtailment do you know how much curtailment was happening was it was it a big number Giles? um i can actually just look that up for you nigel um oh, at times all the solar farms all the solar farms were switched off at times um, because basically they've wow, got contracts which, which, yeah, there's about 350 megawatts um, of large-scale solar in, um, in South Australia. In fact, there's actually, there's more than that, there's 450 now because we've just had the, um, we've just had the new solar component of the Port Augusta Renewable Energy Park start to generate, but that's probably not a full capacity yet. It's still going through the commissioning process. Um, so yep. there's a fair bit of solar, and um, look, I can't actually find those figures there. But yeah, look, there's been there, there's a fair bit of economic curtailment, and all, sure. you know, there's sort of two forms of curtailment. There's people just switch off because the contract tells them to when it's below zero, because the customer doesn't want to necessarily have to sort of fork out and pay its um, um, 
pay the uh, pay the difference, and um, the um, and then there's sort of network curtailment because there's sort of various you know network issues which is sort of you know network constraints yeah network constraints in the hand of the operator for one reason or another, um, and look it has been incredibly high at times, um, but look I think on average. In South Australia over the last year, if I remember rightly, it was probably 4%, and I think it might have actually been lower in the last six months. So, you know, I think most people, when they build wind and solar farms, are looking for about maybe about a 4% curtailment for one reason or another. Um, in some instances, it can be higher, um, but if you've got that much, if you've got any more spilling, it just tells you, well, you need to have more. Um, Solar, uh, more storage or more transmission lines. Actually, I do know in New South Wales, for instance, that some of the solar farms out there, we had a really great piece written by Luke Osborne uh, from Stride Renewables um, talking about um, what he called the black spots in the grid and how sort of various points you could actually sort of, you know, reinforce parts of the grid rather than having huge new transmission lines because some of those, um, I think it was the Molong solar farm and another couple of solar farms were getting... Um, constraints up to 30% of output because they simply just could not get the capacity out on the line. And that's been true in the past Gosh. of the Broken Hill solar and wind farms because it's just one thin line going back into the major um, load areas and the rest of New South Wales and um, you just simply just can't send that many electrons down the line. Anyway. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So there you yeah. go. There's more. There's there, undoubtedly as the um, network and transmission uh, or the transmission and distribution networks get upgraded over the next few years, we'll see these numbers jump up quite a bit because that uh, curtailment hopefully will be happening less and less and less. Well, that's the idea. That's the idea. And we're putting in more storage. So, you know, yeah, we yep. had... Um, yep. We had another eight big batteries being announced last week um, from the federal government. Most of these are sort of about sort of gr grid forming inverters. So, one of the interesting things about South Australia is that um, it's been running at one hundred and four percent renewables. It's had a couple of two little gas units um, from Torrens running through all that time, just to provide sort of what's called sort of grid security. It's mostly sort of system strength and inertia, spinning machines and things like that. Well. Once you get um, a whole bunch of new battery uh, batteries with grid-forming inverters, then you're not even going to need those gas um, gas um, generators. So you will at that stage, and this will probably happen once the new transmission link from New South Wales is installed, you'll get at times where you actually get a pure 100% renewable grid and exporting into na into neighbouring states. And that'll be just um, that'll be a fantastic landmark because it will all be wind and solar. There will be no hydro. And of course, it's the very thing that everybody says is absolutely impossible. Uh, and during the day, it'll be driven greatly by rooftop solar. So, you know, it's um, one by one. You making know, the impossible possible. <laughs> making the impossible possible. Knocking out coal, now knocking out gas. Oh, it's just a wonderful story, really. <laughs> Cheapest form of energy, you know, great capacity factors, biggest share of the total energy market, and and you know, it just goes on and on and on. What a year! What a year! No what wonder year. we're buggered. No wonder we're buggered. Absolutely, absolutely. But of course, um, not everything about the running of the grid is very smooth, is it, Nigel? Because we've, um, you know, you talked in the past about Queensland and the um, and the pretty brutal sort of. Um, 
um, solar, rooftop solar curtailment that happens there at times of need. I mean, one of the challenges of having that much rooftop solar on the grid at any one time is that, you know, until you've got all these other things in place, you want to be able to sort of have some sort of control or orchestration over these things. But um, in Queensland, they're not trying to orchestrate anything. They're just trying to sort of shut the damn thing off and hit it with a hammer. And, um, and it turns out that um, that's exactly what happened in South Australia. At the, during the time when it was actually isolated, it was still running at about 79% renewables through that time, which is remarkable in itself. And some of, the, um, some of the orchestration was happening through sophisticated means, like the ones that, you know, um, I know that your company, Solar Analytics, and others act as agents and have software controls, which allows you to sort of, you know, mm -hmm. be quite clever about it. But they needed more, so they had to go and hit the older systems, which haven't got these um, smarter inverters, and basically hit them on the head with a, um, with a burst of voltage, which um, you might want to tell us more about why um, people are pretty upset about that. Well, this really intrigued me for a couple of reasons because a, I, I'd sort of missed it until I was talking to a couple of people in South Australia and, and they said, yeah, I got a message from SAPN saying, look, your solar system is old, um, but we're going to take it offline to manage the issues that we have in the network at the moment. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to send the voltage above the limit that the inverter can handle. And they literally drove the grid voltages as high as 260 and in some cases reported as 280 volts, um, which, which in itself is quite remarkable. Now, I don't know how long they did that for. It probably didn't have to happen for too long, but of course, you wouldn't want these things oscillating on and off. So they probably tried to sustain it for... Um, some period of time so you know effectively what they did was you know artificially turned off all the old solar systems by simply driving voltage up now that's kind of brutal but clever in 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 respect in one respect and i i it hadn't occurred to me that they might consider doing that because of course everyone who's sitting there you know, with their appliances plugged in, is now seeing 260, 280 volts on their appliances, which isn't really very good. But nonetheless, it did manage to turn off a bunch of solar systems. Um, and I know several people whose solar systems were turned off. But of course, the consequence of driving that voltage up is other loads went off. You were talking about a story that you reported on where some batteries went offline. Uh, one person I know in South Australia also, who was aware of what was going on, had deliberately put some load on the grid, right? Which is what the, what they were asking for in some situations. So they had both their electric vehicles plugged in and they were using that as load and of course, soaking up their solar and, and um, avoiding those exports going out to the grid. But when the solar inverter got tripped off and the voltage went high, the EV charges tripped off as well, of course. So not only could he not self-consume his solar, not only could he not generate any energy, but he also couldn't apply any load to the grid. And there are a number of appliances out there that would potentially switch off with those high voltages. So this is the kind of, um, you know, I guess necessary evil, a bit of an interesting experiment, I think. I, I certainly, you know, didn't see this one coming and didn't hear anyone talking about the fact that one of our policies might be that we'll just drive the grid to 280 volts to turn everything off. You know, if that's their strategy, why on earth have they encumbered inverter manufacturers with years of technological development to bring in dynamic export control and they've got export control in various other forms and SCADA controls? Geez, if they're just going to drive the voltage up, they can turn everything off and, you know, just blow a few appliances up along the way. Seems, <laughs> seems like a pretty crude approach. 
Well, it does seem like a crude approach. Look, I think the argument at the time was that they had no choice because basically they had control with these more sophisticated inverters like the ones that um, you're um, tuning into um, really only cover about 120, 140 megawatts of recently installed capacity and they needed actually yep. 400 megawatts. They needed 400 megawatts of, um, they need to create 400 megawatts of load or get rid of 400 megawatts. So I think they knocked out about 150,000 systems this way. Um, I can't quite remember the number, but it was a fair old whack. I mean, it did sound a bit sheepish about it. We're quite insisting that, you know, the, the, the voltage the voltage bursts were done just so, just so, you know, in just the right way that wouldn't burn your toaster or your fridge or your, you know, whatever. But, um, yeah, um, mm. who knows? I'm not too well, sure. Well, intriguing. It's, it's, it's intriguing to think that that might happen anywhere in Australia at any point if a network decides that they need to do it. It never crossed my mind that they would... Uh, that they would do that and of course this this relates also to queensland where you know this argument about the brutality of the methods used to curtail solar um as as hit the news again i see that a bunch of manufacturers battery manufacturers and inverter manufacturers have got together and written to the queensland government and uh in the most stern of terms said your crude way of uh installing a, a little device which will just turn an inverter off when you declare it's necessary is um, um, dumb. Uh, we don't think you should do it. Um, we are advocating for the smarter techniques and technologies that are being used or potentially being used in places like South Australia, although they, you know, maybe not all the time, but at least they have the ability. And so they've taken on the Queensland government. And I have to say, in the past, I can I can remember multiple cases where industry has actually challenged the regulatory um, managers in Queensland and overturned some decisions, or at least um, got more time to get those decisions right and more consideration. And I and I have to say, I really support those those companies who are doing that because I think this is a, a missed opportunity um, to again get rid of that blunt instrument and do something cleverer that's already happening in other states so so good on them and and I think and I was chatting with uh, with the boss about this we're, we're pretty optimistic actually and um, that um, they will overturn this and that they will convince the government to um, to think again and to do something much much smarter with benefits for everyone. So what's the best way of actually retrofitting then? Because there's an awful lot of solar, rooftop solar that's been sort of put in with sort of older inverters that don't seem to be able to respond to these things. And that's kind of like used as the, as the sledgehammer approach. I mean, I know, it, you know, you, you have to think of new, you know, new inverters have to be smart and you have to sort of think cleverly about that. But there just seems to be this issue now as we're going into this area where we've got, you know, like 100, you know, like really, really low demand in the middle of the day. It's all happening in all states now. Um, mm. It used to happen early in the morning, now it's happening in the middle of the day when the rooftop systems go. So what are the options then of um, of retrofitting the inverters? I mean, do you just need to change the inverters somehow? Do we need a program to do that? Do we, is there some way, is there some tweaking that can be done? I doubt it. Um, I'm not really too sure what the answer is. I mean, we may find they've got no choice, but to, in extreme situations when grids are isolated, that they do got to get out the old um, the old hammer and hit it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and look i mean i think it's a, it's an interesting point um although bearing in mind that the technology they were talking about rolling out in queensland which used the drm to turn the inverter off yeah a lot of inver inverters have had to have drm functionality for 
gosh, five plus years. That was one of the things that the industry jumped up and down about in Queensland and 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 convinced the government to to provide more time to get that DRM function enabled on all inverters, which it is it's a it's a requirement for an inverter manufacturer, never been used. Never ever been used in all these years. So what what we can what we can pretty logically um, conclude from that is that you know most of the historical capacity, notwithstanding emergency events like we've seen a couple of times in South Australia, most of the historical capacity can be absorbed into the grid without any problem at all. The newer systems have the capability to be enabled with this smart stuff. So everything made in the past couple of years, you know, the new standards are coming in. It's a lot easier to handle the new stuff. So I don't, I don't think there's a, uh, apart from an emergency scenario, there's, there's not a huge issue with the, uh, the historic capacity. Um, there isn't an easy way to retrofit, except of course the DRM functionality, um, which was forced on the industry and never used. That that can potentially be used. and But, yeah, my understanding is that the Queensland government wasn't proposing that they were going to go and hit existing systems back to a certain period of time with that functionality or that, that requirement anyway. Now, if, if that was their goal, if they wanted to do a retrofit campaign to get emergency shutdown capability on historic systems, then the DRM tech that they were talking about might be a way to do it, although, you know, it's still going to cost a chunk of money to get out to all those old systems so yeah i think i think the point that everyone's making is the newer inverters anything made in the last you know few years and going forward certainly has a lot of capability already and of course don't forget we've got export limits you know some of the most aggressive export control limits have been in place for many years in in queensland already so you've got an enormous amount of uh, of hard export limits driven by um uh, uh, by, by export caps. Um, so, yeah, it does seem like there's an opportunity to get it much smarter going forward. The retrospective stuff, you know, apart from emergencies, which which haven't happened very often, I, I don't know uh, don't know whether that's really the biggest problem to worry about. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and you're quite right about, yeah, I mean, the, the, I mean and the, the uproar about in, in Queensland about, you know, the way forward is in, entirely justified. And I have to say that... Um, um, it's been the most read story on um, on our websites um, for the year, in fact. Um, the whole sort of wow. Queensland, the Queensland thing, and also the um, and we've done, we've done a series too on export tariffs, and this is the sort of the networks um, trying to sort of muscle in. Um, I mean, not only are they paying you sort of a, a, a pittance um, for the um, the amount that you want to export, so they want to. Um, they want to slap a tax on that as well, and want to take another one or two cents out of it, and um, so uh, Mark Byrne from the Total Environment Centre has done a couple of great pieces, um, just looking at um, um, you know this whole this whole um, attitude about sort of you know charging or sort of two way tariffs and things like that, and he's quite horrified because Mark Byrne and a couple of the other the TAC and, the, and a couple of the other. Um, uh, NGOs actually try to sort of, you know, cut a deal with the networks and and the regulatory authorities saying, okay, look, we can move down this path if we just do this in a really sensible way. But he's been he's just recalling now. He's just sort of saying, just networks are just going out and they're just, you know, it's really quite um, horrifying what they're trying to do and trying to get away with. So um, those those reports are actually um, stories are, are really worthwhile having a look at because. Um, 
the subtext. Here it comes, and it's um, it's um, another bit of greedy business by um, by big companies, which they all seem to be very good at at the moment. Yeah, I guess that might be next year's challenge for us to get into. Will be uh, you know how that rolls out, when that rolls out, and 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 so on. And you know, at the end of the day, um, you know. That's supposed to be a price signal uh, to change behaviour, to avoid people exporting energy. And, you know, once again, we have this pile on of different methods and technologies all layering on top of each other. We've got hard export controls. We've got dynamic export control coming in South Australia. We've got switches like they're proposed in Queensland. Uh, 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 we've got voltage uh, the voltage sledgehammer that they used in South Australia, and now they're going to add a price signal on top of that, and it does make for a pretty complicated um, bunch of scenarios, which are just too much for a consumer to to absorb. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see whether the sun tax actually becomes obsolete and um, uh, a bit purer uh, in the sense that you know it doesn't guarantee that you're actually going to solve any problems for the network. It's a price signal, but people may may choose to ignore that price signal or miss it altogether, misunderstand it and go, well, hang on, I've got an export-limited system that shouldn't affect me, or I've got one of those emergency backstop systems that shouldn't affect me, or I've got dynamic export control, doesn't matter. So, you know, you've got a, you've got a layer of stuff which um, I think once again highlights the critical value of unified regulations and standards across the country. Um, and... Um, so you know, let's. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where that goes next year. And the problem is that just like all price signals, I mean, sometimes you know you get a price signal to do something, and then it just becomes a um, um, just an excuse for some companies just to sort of maximise their their revenues and um, and just sort of you know pour cash into the kitty. And one of the points that Mark Byrne makes is that you know a lot of these things are designed to you know apparently sort of. Uh, Justify new investment in, in in capacity to to absorb the rooftop solar, but as he makes a point out, you know a lot of networks um, have plenty of capacity to avoid um, that rooftop solar. So um, so yeah. there you go. Anyway, now what else have we got on the little agenda? We're almost um, almost come. Well, I think we've almost come down the list, but um, there must be a few other things around to mention. Almost out of time, yeah. I, I, I did another wrap-up uh, in Great Solar Business, uh, which went out a week or so back with a wrap-up of the year and a bit of a forecast for, for next year, um, sort of rolling through the, the major um, milestones of the last year, I guess, some, uh, some stats and key figures and some projections for what I thought might happen next year. Um, give, us a, so, give us a bit uh, of a taste tour. Give us a bit of a taste for what, what, what we're expecting. We're expecting rooftop solar to go... Even higher, back down yeah. to three gigawatts, I, maybe. I reckon. I reckon three point five. I put money on three point five, Giles. Oof. Nigel, Nigel, yeah. that's amazing. Well, like we've I, seen. We'll, I just, we've said. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> that's all right. I I just can't see uh, anything stopping um, uh, this solar coaster from from booming next year you know all the restrictions despite all the restrictions despite the floods despite the rain despite everything else we're going to nearly nail three gigawatts this year and we're still coming out of a of a pandemic for goodness sake so 
Um, with all that pent up demand and all the issues around pricing, and um, uh, we're, we've seen, uh, for example, international shipping costs come back to normality and shipping starting to get a little bit more normal. So, you know, the, the, um, the uh, with with everyone adjusting to the new normal in Australia, I I think everyone's going to be going gangbusters next year. As I did say, that that I think actually the number one risk that we face is supply and demand, um, particularly with what's going on in China at the moment. Um, they've got a, a, a huge wave of COVID, as everyone I'm sure is reading about in the news, and that's still causing a lot of challenges with factory shutdowns and um various other issues and that causes volatility in pricing and it causes volatility in supply and demand so i actually think next year is you know the the difference between three gigawatts and three and a half gigawatts is going to come down to supply and demand which drives availability and it drives price and and if those two factors work in our favor 3.5 easy well that's pretty impressive um i've noticed that um, in europe the um the solar install capacity rose 50 percent in 2022 from about 28 gigawatts to 41 gigawatts. They expect to double their solar capacity to about 468 gigawatts um, by 2026. And uh, a lot of that is a re reaction to the, um, to the energy crisis and the gas shortage and the extraordinarily high electricity prices um, that have been happening there. And also driven by the fact that half of the uh, French nuclear fleet has been out of action at various points in time. And that sort of um, caused a big deficit as well. So, um, so it is interesting, and, and I guess that's going to be one of the big themes from Australia. It's something that we actually touched on in the Energy Insiders episode that we did, the interview we did with um, Federal Climate Minister Chris Bowen, uh, Federal Climate and Energy Minister Chris Bowen, and in earlier episodes talking to people based in Europe and the US, is that there's so much happening in those um, in those regions, you know, Europe as a result of the Ukrainian war, in the US as a result of the Inflation Reduction Act, and then you've got, as you've mentioned, all the problems in China with the um, with COVID and manufacturing constraints. So yes, shipping costs have come down, and some other costs have ostensibly come down. It's just whether we're actually going to be able to get enough of this capacity to Australia, um, you know, whether you're thinking about wind turbines or solar modules or, or, or things like that, which I guess brings right. us to another question there, Nigel. I mean, is there a realistic expectation that we can have a serious um, solar manufacturing capa um, capacity in Australia? I mean, we do have one small manufacturing centre in Tindo in, in, in Adelaide. We're hearing governments more and more talk about, you know, let's let's solve these supply chain issues. Let's get some either assembly or manufacturing happening. Queensland's talking about it. If we're going to do any of these massive mega projects, you know, the 20 gigawatt Sun Cable thing up in Northern Territory, the 26 gigawatt Australian Renewable Energy Hub in the Pilbara, the 50 gigawatt one further south, all the plans that um, Andrew Forrest and now, um, um, who is it comes in, well, Squadron Energy sort of come in with, um, well, that's Andrew Forrest yep. um, separately from Fortescue. You've got all these other people coming in, sort of planning 10 and 20 gigawatt of, of this, that, and the other thing. So, we're not going, they're not going to come in on ships, I would have thought. Some, some of it's going to have to be manufactured here. Yeah, look, I mean, it's been the dream since I worked in a solar factory uh, just down the road from where I am at Brookvale all those years ago when BP had its little factory down there and 
had many attempts at building out, well, indeed, did build out more capacity over the years and ultimately no longer in, in place. And Tindo left carrying the mantle. And, uh, you know, it is a real challenge to get manufacturing capacity, particularly for solar modules up in Australia, um, um, uh, simply because it's such a scale game. You need to get massive, massive scale. So, the, you know, the the signals are good. The noises are good. The demand is reasonable. Um and, and it doesn't take a long time to build a solar manufacturing facility, you know. Um, of course, if you're doing silicon refining, that takes a um, that's a much much bigger investment. That I think is unlikely in Australia, um, but um, there is plenty of opportunity for module manufacturing capacity. Now, whether that can, you know, be justified given uh, how much scale you need to compete globally now, that's the million dollar question, and that's where the government can step in and help. I got my fingers crossed that they may do that, Giles, but um, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, er everything, you know, a lot of the elements are, are better than they've ever been. So, you know, maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Um, well, Nigel, look, I think that's just about a wrap for the um, for this episode and for 2022. It's been Fantastic pleasure sharing our views every fortnight, or nearly every fortnight. We've missed a couple of episodes this year for one reason or another, but um, pretty much every fortnight. And, um, you know, a growing audience. And um, thanks to you, wishing you the best of the holiday season. And everyone out there, I hope they managed to get a break um, over the coming weeks, because um, it's been a big year in 2022, and it's probably going to be even bigger in 2023. Here, here, yeah. Take a good break. That I think that was the other wrap from my <laughs> episode of GSB. What can you do? Take a good break, everyone, because I reckon it's going to be bigger and faster and, and more enthusiastic next year. So um, uh, I look forward to. It. And it's been great. Lots of listeners have come up and told us that they told me they really, really enjoyed listening to the show. And uh, uh, so thanks to all the listeners for tuning in, and thanks, Giles, for you uh, to you for for all the hard work. I hope you have a wonderful break and enjoy your grandson. Oh, I will, Nigel. I hope you, um, you too, mate, you um, and your family have a fantastic um, uh, break over the, um, over, the, uh, over the Christmas holiday period. And uh, look, we'll all be back again at the end of January. Um, thanks to everyone out there. Thanks to our sponsors, of course. And um, thanks to our producer and Delaney for her work during the year. And um, have a great holiday. Bye for now. Solar Insiders was brought to you by SunWiz, Australia's leading service provider for the solar and storage industry. SunWiz's partnership with OpenSolar will amplify the value delivered by their world-leading solar software platform. With pro setup, training and assistance, run your business at maximum velocity. Visit sunwiz.com.au. Solar Insiders was also brought to you by Solar Analytics, helping you get more from your solar, more confidence, more savings and more insights. Visit solaranalytics.com.au